I, I wanted to let you know, I was just past few days, I was at Presbytery down in Darlington, South Carolina. Um, I can't tell you a whole lot about Darlington, that, other than there's a racetrack there, and we had Presbytery there. Um, but our, our Presbytery is in this process of multiplying from one to three and uh, getting used to seeing each other in, in different rooms and knowing this is who we're going to be in relationship with going forward. Um, you can be in prayer for our presbytery. We, we work together to plant churches amongst many other things. Um, and our hope and our plan is that even though we're separating out over the next year and a half, we'll still continue to plant churches together. Um, recently, somebody gave our church, not our church, to be clear, uh, our presbytery, $850,000. Not our church, our presbytery. Um, to plant churches together. And so we're hoping to uh, make that money grow and sustain as kind of an endowment to fuel church planting in our region. Um, Because none of us feel like there's too many churches out there. Um, There's always room room for more. Um, So you can be in prayer for our presbytery. We are in relationship with these churches. Uh, We give... Uh, relational currency to one another. We give physical money to, to, to each other in the form of the presbytery. Uh, it's good to be on mission with these folks. Um, I do want to encourage you to come this Thursday to talk about the idea, the issue of women as, as elders. Um, I, uh, I, I contacted my friend uh, Alex Sossler at Montreat and asked him to come help me because he holds a different position to me, um, and asked him to come talk with me. And I said, you know, this is not a debate. Nobody's voting or anything, so it's not going to hopefully be too awkward for you. He said that he'd be happy to come own me and dominate me in front of my congregation. So I tried to tell him it's not a competition, but now it's a competition, and I will bring him to his knees. Um, Not really. He's really smart. but it's going to be a good time. Uh, hopefully from that you can tell he and I have a good relationship. We like to joke around with each other. Um, but he is really smart, and, and uh, hopefully we'll have a good conversation together. Then we'll break, and we'll give the opportunity for people to ask questions anonymously uh, so you don't have to feel put on the spot, and we'll work together uh, all of our session to answer those questions for you, however we can, to the best of our ability. So it'll be a good time. Our, our hope, our plan is to finish by having communion together, to make it clear that even we disagree on important things, we are one people by the work of Christ, um, no matter what. Um, this morning, we are in the book of Revelation, and will be until Easter, we're in Revelation chapter 4. This is a shorter chapter, so I'm just going to read the whole thing, and it's on the screen behind me, I know. So you can either look in your Bible uh, or look on the screen. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And for the, in the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, 
with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. Uh, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that helps us to see what we would otherwise not be able to see. God, I pray that we would not just be able to visualize what John is describing in your word, but also that our hearts would fully see what is being described. Make our hearts to be soft. Open our ears, Lord God. We pray that our voice would join the voice of the ancient ones, confessing your worthiness. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. Amen. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation are, are different, uh, and the fourth chapter marks a pivot. So the first three chapters are mostly devoted to these messages to seven churches, which we talked about last week. And from here, this next section of the book is most of the book. It'll run to almost the end of the book of Revelation. This is this, uh, almost becomes an eighth letter, an extended letter of a, a large vision that John sees. And this is just the beginning of this vision. And readers who are familiar with the Old Testament will hear a lot of Old Testament imagery that John is, is repeating and using within his vision. The prophets are often, in the Old Testament, beginning their ministry with visions uh, to, to reaffirm their calling, to hear and receive their calling. So uh, there are elements here that are in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah, and John is, is using those things, and he's seeing some of the same things that are combinations of both Ezekiel and Isaiah. John uh, sees... Hears, first hears the voice that he heard before saying, come up here, and there's this sort of gathering up, and there's this open door into the heavens, which is also Old Testament language. And John is in this sort of courtroom slash temple setting. And those ideas for the Jewish mind are meant to go together. We would think of it as a throne room because there's a throne but we also think of it as a temple because of the clues like the, the lamps and the lampstands and the gold, the, the crystal sea 
These are things that uh, are happening in the temple in Israel. But Israel always understood the temple to be the place where God was enthroned. So now John is seeing in this inner court of the temple before the people couldn't enter in to the inner court. They couldn't go to the most holy place. But in the most holy place is a gold box, the Ark of the Covenant. It's full of these uh, holy objects, was untouchable. You, you literally could not touch it inappropriately or you die. Um, and that on top of the box are these angel figures. And from in between these angelic figures on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, it is God issues His voice to Israel. And here in John's vision, he is seeing the throne of God surrounded by angelic beings, and he is about to speak to John. And we won't even really hear his voice in this chapter. That's not going to come until further. Right now, we're just being set up to hear from the throne. And this is John's vision of the throne. The people of Israel, before uh, the priest would pass into the inner court, would uh, they would all pass by this large bronze basin that they called the seas. And so when John sees a crystal sea before the throne, this is laying on top Old Testament imagery. And when the early church reads this passage, they automatically and immediately understand that this crystal sea is the fount of baptism. The only way that you come before the throne is by entering into the church, which happens through baptism. So the water, they'll say the waters of baptism are obviously and of course before the throne of God. And then we see these weird creatures, these four things that are covered with eyes and have likenesses of, of ox and lion and eagle and man. And this is from uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel is walking by this uh, canal in Babylon, and all of a sudden he has this crazy vision. And he sees these four-figured cherubs, and they have these same four faces, ox, lion, eagle, man. And they carry on their backs the throne of God. And Ezekiel says, this is the glory of God. And in Ezekiel's version, there aren't eyes everywhere. But there's these wheels within wheels that are covered with eyes. Which is, I can't even imagine wheels covered with eyes and what that's supposed to look like. And in Ezekiel's version, there's four wings, these four winged creatures. In Isaiah's vision, in his call, he sees, again, angels around the throne of God with six wings. And so you have here in these four creatures, these four angelic faces and six wings combining the visions of Ezekiel and Isaiah and the throne of God, the glory of God. And what is going on there? What are we meant to see? What are we meant to understand with these animal-slash-human-type faces on angelic-type beings with eyes all over their body? The, the early ancient mind sees uh, symbolism, sees structures like this, and, and immediately corresponds it to a lot of things in the world. So 
in the ancient world, they would understand that there are four winds in the earth. Like there are four compass points. That the earth, the whole world, is made up of four fundamental elements, they believed. Earth and fire and water and air. And so they would understand this this symbolism to be explaining to us, the reader, that God's glory and dominion is over the whole entire earth. Everything that there is to have dominion over, in every point of the compass, from every direction, everything that there is, God has His throne established over that. But most often when early interpreters read these things, they said, of course there's four cherubs. And this is the reason why we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Irenaeus will say, this is the reason why we've put four Gospels in the Scriptures. To represent heavenly realities. And what they'll say is uh, that these are actually accurate depictions of what God does covenantally with His people. That the ox is the largest sacrifice that is offered. And that is God's covenant with Israel. And in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the great high priest. The lion is made, meant to make you think of a royal ruler that is specifically described about Judah and other rulers, that they're like a lion. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the reigning ruler who has dominion over all powers and principalities. And the eagle flies and he sees to the ends of the earth just like the prophets moved in the world and saw to the ends of the earth. And just like in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and prophesying really and truly and rightly to the people. And then of course, the covenants are consummated in the man Christ Jesus. But in Jesus, John says the Word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. So of course, when we see these four things, we should see that the glory of God is demonstrated in multifaceted ways in the Gospels of Jesus. And there we have the, the person on the throne. Notice, not many descriptions of the actual person on the throne at this point, but surrounded by these 24 ancient ones. And they're there with crowns, and they respond to this kind of verbal liturgy of the heavenly temple. And they take off their, their crowns, and they set them down, and they bow down before God and say, you are worthy, worthy, worthy. They're responding to the, these triple repetitions of the living creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the ancient ones put down their, their crowns and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed. And they were created. This triple repetition of the glory of God revealed. And they put down their thrones, their, their crowns. Now a lot of people ask, what are these who are these 24 people? And we're not, we're not really sure. There is no answer key that's handed to us, which would be quite handy. 
But David, when he's establishing the temple, he appoints 24 orders of priests and 24 orders of musicians. And here we have 24 people in the heavenly courts, in the temple plates. And it's the question is, you know, are they humans that did something important or something? And there are people debate about this. And I think that the best way to read this is not elder. I hope this is clear. They don't mean elder like I'm an elder, right? I am not them. I think it's pretty clear. I am not seated on a throne like they are. But this word elder can just generically mean an ancient one. And it seems to me and to other commentators that these are actually angelic rulers who are about to forfeit their role in the heavenly scheme of things because of what's about to come in chapter 5. They are laying aside their vocation for what's coming in the rest of the book of Revelation. But their confession, whoever they are, whoever their identity, is what drives the action. Worthy, worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is the one who was and is and is to come. It's not just an understanding of the bigness of God, but as Peter Lightheart said, Jesus, God is the one from whom the future is coming. The thing that happens in the throne room is the thing that will happen and come on earth. Of course, we Christian people are meant to capture what's going on, meant to see and hear what is going on in this heavenly throne room and in the, in the inner place, the most holy place, and the temple of God. And Jesus has taught us to pray that we should be the ones who continually confess that we want the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the future that exists only in the heavenly place with God to come and be our reality presently. So Jesus, when He teaches His people to pray, He teaches them, first off, our Father who art in heaven, holy is Your name. An echo of this vision. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The sense of what we see in Revelation chapter 4 is that the throne of God is established with ultimate security over all things. And that just as the, the beings, whatever those four beings are, are looking everywhere with the eyes that are all over their body, the one that they are, are glorifying, who they are surrounding, who the, whose throne is on their backs, is the one who sees all things. There is nothing that escapes His gaze. There is no place where some alternative throne is established and he is not actually the ruler, the one who has dominion. There is nothing in all of creation, the 24 ancient ones are saying, that has not been created and sustained by this eternal ruler, the creator of heaven and earth. This is a central foundational understanding of who God is. 
the God who makes and sustains all things. Remember, we're, we're hearing a series of visions given to a church that are in the middle of, on the brink of, about to experience real persecution. The letters to the churches in Revelations 1-3 through 3, uh, often have this warning, things are about to get worse. You are about to be imprisoned. You are about to suffer. You are about to experience persecution. So what do these people need to hear and understand above all? But that the throne of God is unassailably established. That there is no contention in the heavenly courtroom. That there is no rivalry here. There isn't the smoke of war God hoping to win the arm wrestle of all arm wrestling matches with some other contrary divine power. There is none of that. It is just God ruling and reigning in total supremacy from His throne, occupying the rightful place of the God who created everything that was and everything that is and everything that will be. He sustains it all. And nothing happens without His knowing. Now, this is both comfort and challenge for those who read it. It's deeply comforting to a church who's about to suffer. Who has suffered. They know that not one drop of blood that they shed for the name of Jesus has been unseen. They, they can pick up their, their songbook, which is the book of Psalms, and, and they can pray the Psalms there that, that continually ask, where are you? Why has this happened? Do you not see? And hear a response that yes, He has seen. Everything that has broken your heart and brought you to tears. Everything that was done in darkness and in secret that has borne you down and weighted you with grief, every single bit of it has been seen by the one who sits on the throne. In the context of this book, what is going to be is especially of concern is the blood of the martyrs, those who are dying for the name of Jesus. But it's not just the blood of the martyrs, but it's the tears of his people that the one who sits on the throne will see. He collects them all, is what Scripture will say. He will count everyone. And he is familiar with your grief and your sorrow. Now there's, there's challenge here too. Because if he has seen, then what was he doing? If he has seen it, if he's really seen it, why? Why has he done nothing, so it seems? Why, if he saw everything that was happening in that dark room, did he not step in sooner and bring it to an end? Why, if he sees the suffering of the martyrs, does he not come in and stop their bleeding. And this is the question 
that will not be answered in detail and in full, even in the book of Revelation. One of the the prevailing themes in the book is that God actually does have plan and intention in the suffering of his people. He doesn't delight in the suffering of his people. He is, in fact, angry about the suffering of his people. He will act on the suffering of his people. But nowhere are we said, here's the full rationale for each and every person's individual suffering. It merely says that he will move on what he has seen. He will move on the things that were done in darkness, the things that brought the tears to his people's eyes. Now, many of us live comfortable lives. Many of us are are maybe in a place right now or for much of our lives where we'd say the list of our sorrows is is short. And we know that that's probably not uh, a long-term status. To be human is to at some point suffer. It's part of the thing to be fragile and mortal. But things really are not that bad. There's further challenge here. The God who sits on his throne and sees all things is himself unapproachably holy. The repetition is again and again, holy, holy, holy. And the holiness of God is this theme that runs from front to back in Scripture. That he is not just all-powerful, He does not just see all things. He does not just know all things. But he is entirely separate because of the otherness of who he is. And it is not a thing where God is on one part of the road and we are another and we just walk long enough and far enough and well enough, then we will get to him. It is a leap in kind and quality of being that we cannot make. And so... We are comforted that God sees everything that is done to us. We are challenged because God sees everything that we do. There's a temptation here to to see God in His fearsome holiness and to quail in hopelessness. If God, who is almighty and all-holy, sees everything Do I actually want him to see me? Do I actually want him to see me from the inside out? Now, many of us, if you're like me, live our lives without that question at all. Many of us just are caught in the mundane, closed, small world realities of our own individual lives. We live with the roof firmly over our head. We are not, as John says, caught up going through the door of the open heavens and seeing this vision of a God enthroned in holiness. If you're like me, there is one throne in this world. It is mine. And I am concerned with my own rule and my own reign. I am am distracted not by the deep, important things of my life, but the totally boring, 
My world is totally consumed and made small by the details of waking up and getting my kids dressed and feeding them breakfast and going to work and coming home and feeding them dinner and putting them to bed so that I can read for like 30 minutes before I fall asleep so I can wake up and put my kids in their clothes and feed them breakfast and send them to school so I can go to work and then come home and eat dinner and brush their teeth and get them in bed so I can read for 30 minutes before I go to sleep so I can wake up and feed them breakfast. This is my life. And that is all that I am thinking about. And frankly, it is often more than I can handle. I am not coasting through this life. I am barely making it every day. And so there is no natural vision of the grandeur of God. I'm I'm not thinking about the terrifying holiness of God or His awesome omnipresence or His eyes roving over everything. I am trapped in the tiny, tiny hamster tunnel of my life. And this is why Scripture is so important. Because this is the eternal Word of God shouting into the mundane of my life, this is not all that there is to your life. And when Scripture is opened in the mundane tunnel vision of my life, and I hear that reminder again and again and again, sometimes I remember, but often I don't. But then there are days when everything gets shaken to pieces. And life is fragile. Life is difficult. And people suffer. And I break relationships. And darkness seems to cloud my vision. And the word from the Scripture is still the same. He is the one who was, and is, and is to come. He is still sitting on a temple, sitting in a temple on a throne, still the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. In those moments, I'm shaken out of the mundane prison of the everyday. And I am invited to catch a glimpse of what is the most true and real and lovely thing in the universe. There is something wild and uncontained and uncontrollable about this vision that John has. It edges into my own personal dominion and territory and in fact refuses to allow me to keep the crown on my own head. And you, you can hear this description of the glory and the holiness of God. <coughs> and you can hear both the comfort and the challenge. And you are meant to hear both of those things. You are meant to, to look at all of the darkness and the suffering that you carry that comes from within and without, the things that load you down or have shaken your world to pieces, and you are meant to say, God is so much bigger than I ever imagined. He is so terrifyingly holy, and He has seen everything. I can rest and trust in Him.
And you are meant to see all the darkness that flows from within your own heart. You are meant to hear like the churches in the first seven letters heard. That God sees your lukewarmness or your enslavement to false teaching or your bad behavior. And you're, you're meant to hear and to remember God is far bigger than you imagined. And He is terrifyingly holy. And He sees everything. But it is important to read chapter 4 in light of chapter 3 and of those four gospel witnesses. You are meant to remember the God who is far bigger than you ever imagined, more holy than you can properly conceive of, who has seen all things, is also the God who has stooped down low in love and has spoken to you with the babblings of a baby. John Calvin will say that Scripture is really the baby talk of God to His people, accommodating Himself so that you would know Him and that you would know that you're loved by Him. So these two things are true. God is terrifying in His bigness and His holiness. And God is so tenderly close and even small to you that He wants you to know Him. He wants you to trust Him, no matter what lies ahead of you. (coughs) If you're here this morning, and you've been carrying the weight of your own sorrows, this vision is meant to provide you comfort. And if you're here today, and you have spent your days, like me, comforting yourself, you are meant to be shaken out of that picture and see that God is is not a thing, a piece of furniture, an accessory in your life. He's the most important person you could ever know. And you're meant to respond. You're meant to respond from either direction, from the challenge or the comfort, out of love. The God who is holy and and, and might otherwise scare you has come close to you on hands and knees to whisper to you that you might hear Him. He loves you and has not pushed you away because of what He has seen. But He has seen you for what you are and He has pulled you so close to Him because He wants to embrace you and as He says to the letter to Laodicea, to seat you on His own throne next to Him. And if you have been carrying the weight of your sorrows... You need to know that God has pulled Himself close to you because He loves you. And even if you do not understand how or why you can continue to go like this, He is the God who has seen every tear that you have shed. He has never once blinked, but has seen it all and has brought Himself into the midst of your suffering so that he might himself be named a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Because he loves you. This vision of God is huge and soul-shaking. And this God, this word has become flesh, so that he might be touched and grasped by his children and held by him forever and ever.
Let me pray for us. <coughs> Father, I pray that this morning you would, you would speak your word and application as clearly as you spoke it to John. That we, I pray, Father, that we would not just read your words, hear them with our ears, but we would instead hear them ringing in our hearts. You are worthy. There is no one like you. And we're so, so grateful that your holiness is blazing in its brightness and its beauty. And it is tied up in love. We cannot separate your holiness and your love. And we're so grateful that you came close to us. Do you want us to see and to taste? And Father, I pray that we would hear you speaking this word in love to us. God, I pray for a loving response. Whether we're weighted down this, this morning by sorrows, and it means lovingly collapsing into your arms. Or rather, if we are challenged by your word, by your holiness, and remembering the things that we have done in darkness and in shame, and are so compelled by the loveliness of who you are, that we are free to drop those things and run to you. Provoke us to love you, Lord God. May we hear that same voice, that trumpet voice that John heard. May we come close to the throne as our brother John did. And there revel in your glory and in your love for your people forever and ever and ever. Amen.